today on episode number 184 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Pooja Argarwal discusses the science of retrieval practice. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I get to welcome back to the show a friend and former guest of the podcast, Pooja Agarwal. She is a PhD and is an expert in the field of cognitive science. She's back today to share some recent and not so recent studies that can help inform our teaching practice. She's conducted learning and memory research in a variety of classroom settings for more than 10 years, and some of which you'll get to hear about on today's episode. She is passionate about evidence-based education, and she has extensive teaching experience in K-12 public schools and expertise in education policy at state and national levels. Currently, she's an assistant professor at the Berkeley College of Music in Boston, teaching psychological science to exceptional undergraduate musicians. Pooja's research is supported by grants from the National Science Foundation and the U.S. Department of Education. In addition, Pooja's work has been featured in the New York Times, Education Week, and Scientific American, as well as academic journals, books, and podcasts. To advance the use of scientifically-based learning strategies, Pooja recently founded retrievalpractice.org, which is a wonderful place to visit for cognitive science research, resources, and tips for educators. Pooja, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks for having me. I am still so grateful to James Lang for connecting us originally. When you came on the show the first time, he had suggested that you'd be a great person to talk to about retrieval practice. And ever since, we've been talking to each other about all sorts of things. (laughs) And I'm grateful for the connection and now the friendship. And I wanted to take you back a little bit in your memory to your undergrad days and have you share a little bit about your early discoveries that something called retrieval practice even exists in the world. Oh, boy. Let me go back to my own memory. So in in undergrad, I was majoring in elementary education and getting my certificate to teach elementary ed. And at the same time, I was taking psychology courses and majoring in a combined interdisciplinary neuroscience program at Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, as part of my senior honors thesis, I wanted to combine the two. I was learning about all this really neat memory research and I was learning about all this neat education and how to teach in the classroom. And so it made sense to, to me to combine them. And when I decided to do an honors thesis, I decided to approach the chair of the department, and, uh, Henry Rodiger, and I uh, asked him, I said, you know, I'm interested in doing an honors thesis on memory, but related to education. And what do you think about some strategies like spacing. And spacing's a basic strategy of literally spacing things out 
instead of students cramming or teachers cramming in one concept and moving them. And uh, at the time, I still remember Roddy as, as chair having this really intimidating office <laughs> lined with books floor to ceiling. And, and he, he kind of pondered for a little bit and said, you know, research right now is really taking off on this, this thing called retrieval. Just thinking about bringing to mind, remembering what you've learned, and that really solidifies memory. So I said, okay, great. So I'm going to do my honors thesis on retrieval. And I, again, combining the two and was currently at that time doing my practicum in an elementary ed classroom, I kept paying attention to what retrieval looked like in the classroom. And one thing that was apparent to me was that students were engaging in sort of an open book kinds of retrieval. They might have their book open and they were completing a worksheet as opposed to a closed book retrieval, which from my perspective as an undergrad was most of what we were talking about in terms of research. And so long story short on my honors thesis, I decided to look at open book retrieval and closed book retrieval, which hadn't really been looked at before. So that's kind of how it all started. And do you remember as you were discovering the names for some of these things? Like, I can certainly remember being an undergrad, don't cram, don't cram, you know, that, that was said so often. But as you were learning the more formal names for these things, and as you were learning that there was a whole body of research, or I should say a, an emerging body of research to back some of these practices up, did you find yourself changing anything about your own habits? <laughs> No. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of like that, like, we're supposed to sleep more and then we don't sleep. <laughs> well, I do think for me, it was a bit circumstantial because I had finished up most of my coursework for undergrad. Okay. I wasn't sort of studying in a traditional sense. Did you find yourself wishing then you had known about these things? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then in graduate school, of course, I, I tried as best I could to at least retrieve on my own while studying. But I think it's once you develop those habits, it's hard to break them, of course. Well, we are tackling a huge challenge today, you and I. <laughs> we decided <laughs> that teaching and I should say I decided that teaching in higher ed could use a little bit of an infusion of some of the rigorous science behind these things. We do tend to talk a lot about approaches and the approaches that we talk about on the show are so much often drawn from research, but then we share them more in terms of personal experience. And so today we're sort of flipping that where we're going to talk about some peer-reviewed journal articles and sort of flip this a little bit and talk about the research and then a little bit about how that might inform our own teaching. And we're going to try to do five articles. Whew. We'll see if we can do this. And then at the end of the show, as usual, we will have the recommendations. And we thought we might begin in the college classroom. The Many of the studies are done in K through 12. Many of the studies are done in college classrooms. Many of them are done in labs. So you have selected for us a mix of these different research contexts. And let's start with this study in 2011, Retrieving Essential Material at the End of Lectures Improves Performance on Statistics Exam. I feel like I just gave it away. Hashtag spoiler alert. <laughs> so what did this study find? Sorry. <laughs> Tell us about this Lyle study. 
Yeah, uh, so this is Keith Lyle and Nicole uh, Crawford at University of Louisville. And they, the of course, the spoiler alert with the title does give it away. <laughs> the basics was that they had two classes of students, both taking uh, statistics, and one class engaged in retrieval. So thinking about what they had learned, they just had some questions that were shown on PowerPoint slides at the end for about five to 10 minutes, the end of a lecture. And this is in a lecture hall with 70 some students. So one uh, class section got these five to 10 minute retrieval questions, just asking about basic concepts and they were all short answers. So write down the definition of t-tests or write down what a power analysis is. The other class section didn't get any of these PowerPoint short answer questions. But that was it. That was pretty much the very basic experiment in their actual classes teaching statistics. And so looking at how students performed on, uh, they had four exams throughout the semester. And looking at how students performed on those exams, there was almost a 10% difference between the class section that received these five to 10 minute short, an short answer PowerPoint questions versus the class section that didn't get those questions. One of the ways that I see this informing our work and our approaches is this tension that we so often feel of trying to get the content in to the class. And that if given a forced choice of spending time doing retrieval practice or spending time catching up, filling their heads with more content, this would seem to indicate that everyone's time will be better spent on retrieval practice. Yeah, I agree. I do completely understand there's a trade-off. And, and I encounter that same trade-off in my own classroom teaching intro uh, psychology I do feel, though, that the value of retrieval, scientifically, especially knowing that that improves long-term learning, improves long-term retention, to me, I have decided to make that trade-off instead of presenting more content that my students aren't going to remember at all. The other thing that I noticed that some people not as familiar with these practices is thinking that we aren't teaching when we are having students engage in retrieval practice, but assessment as part of the learning process is really vital in thinking about our time. Yeah, and I think there are different ways to engage in that retrieval that make it feel less and less like assessment and more and more like uh, flipped learning or blended learning or a lot of different activities. The next study that we're going to look at actually really does, I was about to ruin the next study. <laughs> I'm not going to do it though. The, the results of this next study are yet another benefit that can often be forgotten when performing retrieval practice that I think has a lot to tell us as teachers. So why don't you tell us about this 2006 study, which in the context of this one, by the way, for the listeners, this one took place in a lab. Mm -hmm. In this 2006 study by my colleagues, Roddy Rodiger and Jeff Karpicki, they looked at 
a very basic experiment conducted in the laboratory with college students from Washington University in St. Louis with 180-ish college students. In this study, with two experiments, college students did a few different things. They either read some very brief passages that were pretty simple and straightforward, like a passage about sea otters. Mm. (laughs) See, this is a laboratory experiment. And students either would read these passages about sea otters or the way the sun works, and then they would engage in some tests or retrieval, which I'll explain in a minute, or they would just reread the passage over and over again. And these tests that we traditionally call free recall in laboratory experiments, the researchers just gave students a blank sheet of paper and asked them to write down everything they could remember from the passage they just read. And in one experiment, students read the same passage four times, or they read the passage three times and engaged in this free recall once, writing down everything they could remember, or they read a passage once and they engaged in free recall three times. So in other words, all the students participated in these kind of four periods, whether they restudied a passage or they tested and wrote down what they could remember. And for us, from a laboratory perspective, that's really important to make sure that students spent the exact same amount of time, whether they were restudying a passage or restudying and taking tests. Because one concern, like in that Lyle and Crawford study, is well, those students had five to 10 minutes where they were retrieving, and so they had extra exposure, it was more novel compared to the class that didn't. So with these laboratory experiments, it's much easier to control that. And Roddy and Jeff then looked at how students performed on a final exam, which again was to just write down how much they could remember. And they looked at performance for that after five minutes. So right after reading and testing or after one week. And what they found was that after five minutes, and this isn't really that much of a surprise, especially to students, after five minutes, the students who reread the passage over and over again performed much better. So they performed at about an 83%, whereas students who read the passage once and engaged in this retrieval practice or three quizzes, they had 10%, their performance was 10% lower after five minutes. But after one week, there's this really neat, what we call a crossover effect, where it dramatically switches. So after one week, when students engaged in that retrieval practice, they're now 20% above the students who just reread. So after that one week, students who engaged in retrieval performed about 61% correct, as opposed to when students reread passages, their performance was only 40%. Is some of this getting at, maybe not directly in the study, but is some of this getting at what I believe is called desirable difficulty, that that initial exposure to retrieval practice I might perceive as a student being very difficult. I may not necessarily like it because also I may fail sometimes, get questions wrong. And so there's the, there's just the more challenging aspect of, gosh, I, in this class setting, I really need to be alert and engaged and 
I may sometimes feel like, wow, I'm not getting this very well. But then when we go forward a week, or in my case with so many students, like they graduate and then that, that they really are able to hold so much more in their heads. Sorry, that I'm, at some point I'm going to form this into a question. You're nodding your head. I can see you on video. <laughs> We're connecting via Skype today so we can see each other. Uh, I, again, I know that's not this, the the centerpiece of this study, but it is reminding me just of that aspect of that, that sometimes the retrieval practice types of exercises will be a little bit more challenging, but, but boy, this long-term retention really can be a big payoff. Yes. And I, I know that with desirable difficulties, it actually is a large part of this study and pretty much the rest of research on retrieval practice. And I find that desirable difficulties plays into not only students' study strategies. So when students try to engage in retrieval, it's difficult. It seems like it doesn't work, so they abandon it. Uh, just like looking at this Rodiger and Karpicki study. But I also have found that the same thing applies as instructors and teachers. So if we use retrieval in our own classroom, it might seem like it doesn't work. Or it might seem like students are really struggling and so retrieval's not working. And as instructors, I find that it's really important that we don't stop just because it doesn't seem like it's working initially. Desirable difficulties is desirable. It may not feel or look like it's working, but then over time, it really makes a difference. Anything else you want to say about this one? Because I, I know we've got a few more to talk about, but this you mentioned was really a pinnacle study for retrieval practice. The retrieval practice literature, there's been research that was published in the early 1900s. There are some great quotes from early philosophers about this very intuitive idea that mm. think about what you know or role playing or teaching someone else or all forms of retrieval. So we've known this for a long time. It's, it's not a novel concept or a new strategy. And all this research on it was, was published more than 100 years ago. With this Rodiger and Karpicki study in 2006, it sort of sparked and renewed interest in all of this research. We see these huge whopping effects in terms of how learning works and how we can improve it with students. And so that's why this became one of the landmark studies more than 10 years ago. Our next study is entitled, and I hope I don't, actually, I'm going to give it away. <laughs> Our next study, uh, actually, no, in this case, I know you're going to talk about a series of studies that were done with different effect sizes. And one of the things that I know is important for you to talk a little bit about is just that that's a realistic thing to expect when you're doing this kind of research, given the complexity of it. But what can you tell us about the testing effect on skills learning? And then if you want to share a little bit about some of the other studies here, too, that would be great. Oh, where do I begin? Um <laughs> I'm laughing as I'm asking you this question because it's like we said five articles, but really now it's like eight articles. <laughs> Actually, if you just want to focus on this one, the testing effect on skills learning might last six months. Then we can also just mention that there will be links in the show notes to other ones that this particular researcher did. In this study with skills learning, this was a series of studies that were published by researchers in Denmark in 
medical school classrooms. And something I find fascinating and I'm so excited about is that this research is really catching on in medical education. In these series of studies, the researchers looked at how medical students could learn CPR skills. So something we can all relate to, something pretty straightforward for medical students. And in these three or four different research studies, medical students were either in, were all in courses teaching CPR skills, but some had this training in CPR and then spent five minutes or less actually practicing on a CPR dummy or mannequin, as opposed to some medical students who received the training in the form of lectures, but they never practiced on a mannequin. Super simple. And what they've shown is that even just this five to 10 minutes of practicing on a CPR dummy made a 10% difference in students being able to remember the key steps of providing CPR. And one of the things that you wanted to caution us on is that statistically speaking, the significance here in this particular study isn't quite as profound as some of the other research that's been done. Anything you want to share about that before we talk about our next one? I think some of the effects can be very profound, but they vary depending on all of the things that I find make applied research really fun. So I love scientifically rigorous research in the lab, but admittedly, I love applied research even more. Humans are messy. <laughs> and so with these medical studies or a series of studies I've done in K-12, sometimes we get really profound, robust effects, and sometimes we don't. I am talking to one of the authors of this next study, and this one is called Test Enhanced Learning in the Classroom, Long-Term Improvements from Quizzing. The context of this study is K-12, through and it was published in 2011 in the Journal of Experimental Psychology. So you shared that this is an applied study again. Speaking of that complexity, what can you tell us about this one? In this series of experiments, my colleagues and I did research in a sixth grade social studies classroom. And we, in our first experiment, we pretty much replicated that study by Rodiger and Karpicki in 2006. So students sometimes received quizzes and we use clickers in a lot of our research in K-12. So some students or, or sometimes students received clicker quizzes on information they were learning, for instance, about ancient Egypt. And other times they didn't receive clicker quizzes and the teacher just continued with her lesson. So in our first experiment, we found and replicated this great basic finding, three short, brief clicker quizzes boosted student learning much more than not having quizzes and the teacher just continuing with her lesson. In our second experiment, we did what I had mentioned as well, where we controlled for time and exposure. So in this second experiment, students got clicker quizzes three times. They saw the questions and answers three times, but they didn't click in. And then, or the teacher continued with her lesson without the clickers or the restudy through the clicker software. And again, we replicated the same effect. And so now we've controlled for timing. And then the third experiment, we wanted to look at student self-directed learning. 
So if students quiz themselves online, will we still see that benefit from retrieval? And especially when it comes to applied research, student quizzing online outside of school can get even messier, especially with sixth grade students. But it was really exciting that again, we replicated the same result, even with just placing the retrieval as a responsibility of students outside of class. It's too bad that we've really conditioned so many of our learners to think of these quizzes outside of our classes as punitive or because so much of the time they're graded higher stakes, that kind of thing. And so as opposed to just the benefits that come from doing that. And, and I, I found that, you know, there does need to be some sort of stake in it, or they, they might not take advantage of whatever tool it is that you're offering. But having too high of stakes can sometimes open up the opportunity for people to not necessarily want to just engage in the test enhanced learning opportunity that you're trying to instill during a given time frame. So well, these are such interesting studies. I don't want to miss the opportunity to ask you about your 2008 article. And this is a little bit of follow-up on open book versus closed book retrieval practice. And I'm super interested to hearing what, what you were studying here and then what your findings were. This study is actually, it goes back to the story we started with. This study from 2008 was actually my senior honors thesis. And so this was the research I was doing in college. And what we looked at was open book and closed book retrieval where students read passages. These were quite a bit longer. And they either engaged in a short answer test with, without having the passage available, so as a closed book quiz, or they could have the passage next to them while they filled out the short answer quiz. And what we found was that students benefited from both open and closed book quizzing compared to just rereading the passage. So again, retrieval was still more powerful even if students had that passage with them. But another finding that was interesting was that students predicted the exact opposite. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was actually the case in the Rodiger and Karpicki 2006 study as well, is that when we asked students in which condition are you going to remember more, the retrieval condition or the restudy, students almost always say the restudy, the reread condition is what's going to lead to longer term learning, and it almost never does. And we can say, ha ha, students aren't very smart, are they? Or we can say, we all have a tendency to miss some of these counterintuitive aspects to teaching and learning. It's really complex. And rather than see such a great distance between our learners and ourselves, we could see that we all have these potential to predict wrong about about the effects of our actions. So I'm so glad that you've come today to share some of these articles and research so that we can all just be getting better at what it is that we do and and be I don't know, just be be a little bit more thinking critically about the what's really going to work. What's the best use of our time in a classroom, outside a classroom as we design classes. Before we get to the recommendation segment, we did just go through five articles. <laughs> I'm going to stop just for a minute and say anything else you want to make sure just to emphasize any last themes before we do make that transition. I would, two things I'd want to add. One is that I have summaries of a lot of these research studies available on my website, retrievalpractice.org. 
You can subscribe for email updates where I continue to summarize research, but also providing tips and recommendations based directly on that peer-reviewed research in the field of cognitive science. And the second thing I'd like to mention is just about the true rigor of science that happens in our field. It's really nice to have that confidence that these aren't strategies that people have experienced and they work well, and it's not just surveys with students, but experimental empirical research that shows that this works. That being said, we still have a long way to go. There's a lot of research we still need to do on different student populations, different content areas, different types of retrieval. So I think the field is moving in a really exciting direction. Thank you so much. And I can just, you know that I do this regularly, but I cannot say enough good things about the Retrieval Practice website. It is just a go-to source that has both the rigor, if you want to dig in and see the the types of research that's been done, but also then makes it so accessible to us to be able to put it into action. I just really think you've done a tremendous job on that resource. This is the point in the show where we each get to make some recommendations. And the other day, I went off to work and I came home to a completely transformed pantry. And it is so funny that you would think that a pantry would bring me such joy, but it totally did. There is a new, in our community, there's a a new Facebook group, which is designed for people who need help for stuff around the house that they feel stupid to ask someone to help with. So it'll be like, I feel dumb asking for someone to come fold my laundry for two hours, but that's what I need. And so it's just kind of like a shameless Facebook group where people can go this is what I need. I need, just need someone to come wash some dishes or whatever when people get too overwhelmed. And in this case, someone needed help with some organizing. And so they linked over to a professional organizer's website. And oh my gosh, she's super cost effective. I'm by the way, not recommending her because she's only here in Orange County. And I don't even know if I'll share her name, even if you are in Orange County, because I want her all to myself now because she was wonderful. But what I am going to recommend today are a couple of things. One is just the power of outsourcing something in your life. We have someone come to clean our house one time a month. And for some people, that's just an expense that is outside of what they're able to do. But if you are able to do something like that, oh my goodness, it makes such a difference just to have that one less thing to try to worry about. If you don't necessarily have the money to hire someone to come organize a pantry for you, then insource the job. And whether you get get it done through someone else or you're able to do it yourself, of course, I'll give you a brief 15-second lesson in organization. (laughs) You take everything out. You put it in three categories, getting rid of, donate, or keeping. And then you put like things together. And I love this because she just was bold. She just got rid of a ton of stuff that like we didn't, there was some craft stuff in there. And rather than say like, do you want this? Do you not want this? Like, There was very little when we came back in terms of she was pretty uh, assertive about getting rid of stuff that just, you know, it piles up after time. And it left us a little bit of room to grow. And it really is helping us rediscover what we have. One tiny, tiny thing that she did, which is adorable. (laughs) She labeled everything. So at the kid level, 
there's grab and go snacks and there's two baskets down there with grab and go snacks. And my kids are getting such a kick out of this. They're like, but they can't, they don't know the expression grab and go. So my three-year-old's like grab something, go. Like she doesn't quite get the phrase right, but they're just so, they've got things at their level. They've got autonomy to go in there and grab something. It's just super fun. That was a really, really long recommendation that I'm not sure people can take action on, but it was the first thing that came to my mind when I thought about what was bringing me joy this week. So, you know, outsource, insource, rediscover what it is that you have. And Pooja, I'm going to pass it over to you to make a recommendation. (laughs) Can I make two? Yes, of course. (laughs) So one is that I, I love to travel. And I've been trying to figure out where I might go in March during my spring break, because of course, as teachers and instructors, we get a spring break as well, even though we probably need to work. And so in terms of trying to decide where I want to go, I was thinking of a lot of my past favorite experiences in traveling. And one book I cannot recommend enough is a book called Waiting for Snow in Havana. I was fortunate to go to Cuba last year, and I read this book, and I loved it. Even if you're not going to Cuba, because I know access right now is difficult, I can't recommend the book enough. There's just a way of the author spinning a story about his childhood and and his experiences, and I don't typically read fiction, but I love that book. And another past travel experience I loved and I missed dearly, my very first international trip sort of on my own was to Uruguay. And I chose Uruguay because tourists and Americans don't go there. And part of the reason why I went there is literally because I happened upon a blog. And everyone has to go to Uruguay and everyone should check out this blog before they do. It's called guruguay.com. (laughs) we are going to spell this (laughs) i'm typing so guru g-u-r-u and then guay g-u-a-y dot com so instead of uruguay uruguay what a clever name yeah and karen and i have become good friends as well i think she's got so much helpful advice and and i really would encourage people to go to uruguay when they can what a fun set of recommendations. Is that both of yours? I can make one more. Oh, sure. I was going to say that really is like one, the travel. Yeah. Okay. And then you got one more. <laughs> uh, I, it's it's something I'm still playing around with. Uh, me and my husband have, have started buying up way too many Google Home minis. <laughs> so uh, like the Google Home and then now the Google Home mini speaker things. And he recently put one in the bathroom and I, I swear I'm not brown nosing, Bonnie, but I was getting ready and I decided, well, I don't know if I want one of these in the bathroom, but I'm going to try it. And I, I said, hey, Google, play the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. No way! I'm not joking. <laughs> I really wanted to see how far this could go. And it did. It said, now playing the most recent episode for Teaching in Higher Ed. No and I got such way. a kick out of it. So, I'm totally getting a kick out of that. That is not where I thought you were going. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I did not. I wonder. I, we have. I, sh, I. I'm so hesitant to even say that we have any of these devices because we do have a number of past guests who get very concerned about the privacy implications of such devices. But let's just say hypothetically we had one. 
Let's say it's not a Google Home. I think I'm going to try this later and see if it works on ours and I'll email you and no one will ever know. (laughs) It'll be our little secret. Okay. (laughs) I totally love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing these great eclectic recommendations and for these great articles too that help inform our teaching practice. I just so enjoy these conversations with you and know that we'll be having another one down the road too, whether it's on the phone or whether we actually record that one. I <laughs> just appreciate your the relationship with you and just how you inform my own teaching. Thank you so much. Thanks to Pooja Agarwal for coming back on Teaching in Higher Ed for today's episode number 184. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you would like some regular updates, by regular I mean once a week, an update from me with the links of the most recent show notes and also an article written about teaching or productivity, you can subscribe to the weekly update at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And as mentioned in the episode, if you want to learn more about retrieval practice, I know of no better place to visit than retrievalpractice.org. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.